Hello and welcome to episode 75 of the official EstablishTheRun.com podcast. My name is Adam Levitan. I'm one of the co-founders here at ETR. As always, I'm joined by fellow co-founder Evan Silva. And today we are joined by a very, very special guest. This is a young man who's been analyzing football deeply for more than a decade. Came to fame among us nerds, I think originally at Football Outsiders. Moved to ESPN in Grantland, RIP Grantland. Currently writing about NFL for ESPN. It is, of course, Bill Barnwell. Bill, how's it going? Great. Also, by the way, quietly, for a short period of time, former Roto World writer. So to build on last week's conversation. Seriously, I, I saw somebody notice that. How did I not know that? When, when were you at Roto World and how did I not know this? It just feels like it was sometime in the distant past. I don't remember what I was there for. I don't remember what I wrote about, but I was there very briefly. Um, you guys were obviously doing your thing. It was one of my favorite sites, all site I use, of course, to this day. But, uh, you know, it, it was just it's just like having it on my resume somewhere in, in the distant past. Yeah, I think that I remember it. Um, it. And it was brief, but you wrote like a sort of like a matchup column. Right? Okay, I, I could see that. Yeah. Well, because I remember this, I think it was a week one, and it was this big debate of Carson Palmer versus Alex Smith, who should we start? Oh, boy. Do you recall that at all, Bill? No, but I probably got it wrong. Is my hunch based on <laughs> to how this? No, is but I mean, you were. This was uh, pre Twitter, so mm-hmm. even Matt, you would just maybe get angry e- emails. You know, you weren't going to get a you know where you can't even look at your mentions for three days. <laughs> it wasn't one of those situations, but it was. Um, yeah, it was. You you were using like just you were approaching like matchup decisions in like a different way than had been done previously. Um, you know, not just going, not just using like, oh, which team has given up the most fantasy points, you know, last year, like, like that's supposed to be relevant, you know, for the coming year, you were using a different process. And I mean, that was really, whether you got it right or wrong, it didn't matter. You know, you were, you were just like using a different way to analyze matchups in, um, you know, fantasy lineup decision-making. And um, you would you would take bold stances. Um, I, I I'm pretty sure that that's that's correct. That that's my sort of memory of it. <laughs> the what taking bold stances part does sound like me in 2007. So I think that checks out. Yeah, we got a lot of good feedback to the podcast last week. But anyways, we have to move forward, Evan, because we had big news this week. Cam Newton is a Patriot. Had to bring in the big gun Bill to discuss this. But anyways, <laughs> if you guys uh, are watching the video, Evan has moved. Evan has now has a beautiful backsplash, brand new kitchen, brand new house. Evan, what's going on? What's up, man? Yeah, this is like a weird uh, little background for me. We're, we're going to get a, a much cooler background. Hopefully that it says like ETR in the back, you know? Yeah. But um, I, this is like the only spot where I could, where I can do this right now. But um, yeah, I got, I got a lot of stuff to unpack. Cool. All right. We're going to get to Cam Newton and everything else with Bill in a second. Before we do that, I wanted to let everyone know that our early bird special is expiring on July 8th. Consider this your warning. This will be by far our best offer of the season. We've added a ton to both the draft kit and the in-season package. We're going to have more really big announcements coming soon. So fair warning. Uh, We appreciate Bill. We're forever indebted to Bill. He's been a supporter since day one. Uh, Less than one week left on the early bird. Get in there. Head to the site for more details. Uh, okay, I want to get into all the football stuff in a minute and because we don't want to waste Bill's mind. But first, I got to ask you, Bill, about your beginnings. I, I believe you landed at Football Outsiders in 2008. Uh, for those guys that don't know, Football Outsiders was, I think, one of the first football analytics site, you know, started mm-hmm. by Aaron Schatz. Uh, how did you get to Football Outsiders, Bill? And what was it like in those early days? Great story because it came through fantasy, just fantasy baseball. Uh, do you guys remember the baseball primer website? No. No. <laughs> Evan, <laughs> oh, for two. All right. Well, baseball primer was like sort of like a baseball blog, just sort of like a like sort of like a pre-Reddit specific baseball site. And I was a poster there. Uh, Aaron Schatz, who was the head honcho of football outsiders, posted about a like a 25-man national league only, um, you know, like super hardcore baseball league that had a live draft in Boston. I was going to school there. I was like, this seems like something I would do. I'm a nerd. I would, I would enjoy this. So joined the league. A year later, he started Football Outsiders. I had an internship um, from, for college. And it was like one of those internships where like you do half, like you, you spend half the time at the internship doing the work and half the time just messing around on the internet. So 
I spent that time doing data entry for Football Outsiders. Um, they wrote a book. I they had no one to write about stuff for Fox Sports. They asked me if I wanted to write for Fox Sports for literally ten dollars a column. I said, mm-hmm. of course. I wrote like five thousand words for ten bucks, um, and then uh, that was it. Just sort of you know kept getting opportunities there at Football Outsiders, and then uh, eventually somehow I went through IGN. I went through uh, Grantland, but eventually I had a career, so that was pretty cool. Um, it was always really just the thing of, and I'm sure this is probably similar for you guys, just I would much rather work hard doing this than not work hard having a nine to five job that I hate. For sure. That was really what it boiled down to. And then, um, you know, I mean, like the early days at Outsiders were cool because I think, number one, there was no data. So you really had to go out and just gather anything. And it was always a mystery as to where you were going to find something. You know, I remember like scraping injury data off like, you know, like archive CNNSI pages. And I think the really cool thing was you would do research and not know what was going to happen. So like you would build a model, not a very, model is a very generous word for the research I was doing in the early days of Football Outsiders, but like you'd build something to try and solve, try and answer a question. And you would have, to- like the findings were going to be a total mystery. Like you would have something that totally confirmed what you thought. You would have something that would totally, totally uh, deny your initial idea. So that element of like not knowing what you were going to find in the data was really cool. Yeah, that is really cool. I think like there's some stats that I think from early as in football outsiders stats that I think still hold up today. And there's been some debate about whether they do or not, but DVOA uh, adjusted line yards, like using Pythagorean formula to understand wins and basically just like a lot of stuff that I think tries to strip away what's noise, what's Mm -hmm. luck and what's real, which is really like what I think a lot of statistical analysis is in sports. Like you know, just because, for example, you know, a team happens to recover six straight fumbles doesn't mean that they're world beaters. It just means that they're running pure in terms of mm-hmm. recur of recovering fumbles. Like, do you think that those early football outsider stats uh, hold up today? And is there anything new that that you really, really like? Um, I mean, some do, some don't. A lot of the work I did, I would say, probably does not. Like, you know, and just because, like you know, the data wasn't all that great, or I was not very smart about, you know, uh, building models, but I think DVOA still does, you know, I I think DVOA is still a pretty strong indicator of stuff. And I think when there's a gap between someone's DVOA or DYIR and and what I see in reality or what the raw numbers say, like, still is usually a pretty useful indicator that there's something happening there. Um, You know, I I would say that, like, I, I think because the NFL is so weird, right? You know, because it's a 16 game season, because we get 16 data points on how a team performs. So much of the work that happens when it comes to the NFL is just stripping out what doesn't matter and stripping out what happens in a small sample and making, you know, sort of building like anti-fragile models based on, on that sort of stuff. And it's not as, you know, it's not as rewarding as basketball or baseball in some ways because you don't have that big sample. But, um, you know, I, I think the stuff that has been built up is, is, robust and meaningful like we know like hey like these teams who have really great records in close games it's not going to happen year after year 90 percent of the time and i think that the sort of broader public hasn't really caught on to that yet and you know it doesn't make anyone a genius for counting up the the record in close games but like if it's that simple there has to be more interesting stuff sort of looming as we get better data and i think now that we're getting better data when it comes to team performance when we're getting the player tracking data when we're getting you know better epa models we're getting stuff like that um, you know, obviously it's much more complex, but I think there's really cool opportunities sort of laying with that uh, when it comes to, you know, building future models and understanding what actually wins football games. Yeah. Another thing that, that, that you, you do, Bill, maybe the, the foremost thing that you do is that you just sit around all day and analyze trades. You know? <laughs> the coolest niche to have carved out. You know, you, you just like analyze like every transaction and every, you know, and every single one of those. I mean, I've read like every single one of those for the last, I don't know how many years, you know, and how, how did you like come to just carve out that niche? I mean, that's like literally the coolest niche in, in, in football. Right you know, I mean, you do the same thing and I read everything you do when it comes to grading free agent stuff and grading trade stuff. Like that's, I, I, I honestly, I think if you ask me what link I clicked most frequently, in, in the spring at each of the past six years, it was your uh, free agent rankings because it was a great sense of like, okay, when I'm scrolling down and I'm seeing, you know, th- this sort of frame for this offer, like, you know, like, like, like in the middle of the tight end group, you have like, you know, four guys getting a million dollars a year. And then Jimmy Graham gets two years and $18 million from the bears. And he's the 10th best tight end. 
number one, that matches up with what I think typically most of the time, but also just like that thing of, oh, this is how bad this deal was because just it does not fit the market at all because that's what the market should be. Um, I, you know, that was really copying from other people. I mean, I think it was number one, reading baseball prospectuses, transaction analysis, which I thought was my favorite part of the site for years. And then Kevin Pelton, who also works for ADSPN, would grade the NBA free agent deals and, and NBA trades. And I said, well, why don't we do that for football? And nobody else on our site at ESPN was doing it. And so I kind of, you know, got lucky enough to be like, okay, we'll do it. And granted, like for that first three or four day period in free agency, I don't really sleep a lot, but it's cool. Like I think there's, my favorite part about Roto World, especially now when I go back and do research, is also just having that, having that sort of opinion that was honest at the time. I think this is a, a sport and this is a, a media culture where I think we are, and I, I do this sometimes too, but I think a lot of people sort of like, you know, they have those takes in the moment and then kind of once the future happens, like once things happen in the future, they sort of ignore those takes and file them away and it never happened. And I think having those sort of opinions of how things were viewed actually at the time is so meaningful and so valuable when it comes to actually evaluating you know what we know and don't know about football i mean you know i'm trying to think of that that would be my yeah. same argument for that draft grades who everybody says has no value mm-hmm. actually does have value i agree 100 um, percent, and i think free agent grades as well i mean i'm 100 percent going to get stuff wrong like i think would be a good example robert woods like i hated the robert woods signing and it's been great. He's a great player. He is a great fit for that offense. He's a great blocker. Um, and, and moving from, you know, Tyrod and the Greg Roman scheme to um, Sean McVay has been a huge boon for him. And I think, I'm sure he wouldn't be quite as good in the same scheme, but it's just like, you know, I don't want to sit here and pretend that I thought he was a great player my entire life and, and his entire career. Like, I want to say, okay, I was wrong three years ago. And I think that having that in the moment, you know, really let's be thinking about, okay, well, what, how do I change everything, how I feel about wide receivers in the future? I think there's such like a, a valuable piece of information knowing that in the moment. Um, it's one thing to like talk about analytics and try to dive deep from a data perspective on the game at Football Outsiders or at Established Run where people are, are hardcore and really trying really hard to understand. And I think a lot of people um, are uh, thinking about the game in more of an intelligent way. But then when you mm-hmm. go to ESPN and you have this huge platform and huge megaphone is there pushback at espn the nerds are ruining football why why aren't you watching the tape blah 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 do do you feel that uh at espn um i mean from the public yeah of course yeah Uh, from the espn side no they're really good about letting me do what i do um they you know we have great data we have great information on the back end like there's so much cool stuff to work with that i don't even really know about half of it but just like i'll find something like you know that'll be a good example the uh these sort of on-field, off-field data we have. Like, I didn't know about that. No one told me about that. One of my editors was just like, hey, this is a thing you can use. And like, I use that all the time. It's super valuable to me to know, you know, that Chris Jones, uh, the, the Chiefs have a much better uh, run defense and a better pressure rate and a better sack rate with Chris Jones on the bench as opposed to him on the field. Like, just having that fact is, is really valuable for me um, and hopefully makes me stand out a bit. Um, and I didn't know that existed until we found out at the ESPN. I, I think, like... I I'd sort of try and be conscious of it, you know, like I, I think I use passer rating more than I would if I was writing for Football Outsiders. I use EPA less, but I think you sort of try to trickle stuff in, you know, like I feel like if I do something and hopefully over the course of a year or two, I can kind of like, you know, take an advanced stat and hopefully give it more exposure and get more people looking at it. Um, but it's it's a balance. Like, you know, at the end of the day, like people are not there to, you know, study football in the way that they are football outsiders or ETR or, or PFF or any other site. So I try to sort of balance it. Sure. Okay. We've talked long enough without giving takes, without firing some takes. <laughs> it's it's time to fire some the take yes. cannon. And we had a big news drop. I mean, just uh, almost out of stone blue. I think a lot of people had projected this, but Cam Newton finally signs with the lone team that really had a starting position open left. Cam Newton is now a New England Patriot, uh, expected, I think, by most accounts, to be the starter ahead of Jared Stidham, ahead of Brian Hoyer. And I think Evan and Bill might have different take than me on Cam Newton's injury situation, which I'd love to debate because I am certainly open to being convinced. And Bill had some good points in his article for sure. But the reason I think Cam Newton was still around, the reason Cam Newton settled for such a bargain basement deal, two surgeries on his throwing shoulder, one in March of 2017, one in January of 2019. Also, Liz Frank injury last preseason, got surgery in December of 2019. Um, 
Bill mentioned in his article that he had actually watched some tape to see what he thought of Cam's injuries. First of all, what do you think of the signing, Bill? And what do you think of Cam's health outlook as we look to 2020? Okay, so signing, I love it. Obviously, the the contract is so friendly. It's such an easy deal. If, if he washes out, the Patriots have no risk. It, it's such a good deal. So I'll stay with that. In terms of the injuries, so obviously, I think the the possibility of a reoccurrence of an injury is high, and I think that's the big concern. But right now, I think as Cam Newton sits there, I think he's fine. I mean, the shoulder. Going back and watching him play. Uh, in week one of 2019, he had some absolute cannon throws. I mean, he was uh, that that Rams game was really tough to watch because he was missing some throws, but he was missing because he wasn't planting. He wasn't missing because he didn't have the velocity on his throws. His shoulder looked fine. It was the foot that was a serious problem. And then we saw, I think, in that that was a Thursday night game, the Bucks game, right? I mean, so yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that game was a mess. And he had open receivers and was missing everyone. And I think that was the foot injury again. So Going back through history, I mean, you have examples of, of, of quarterbacks with Liz Frank injuries. Uh, the franchise, Taysom Hill, had one in college, came back and played another year. Um, I think uh, Matt Schaub had one in midseason, missed the rest of the year, and came back and made the Pro Bowl the following season. I mean, I, I don't think the Liz Frank injury is something I would be concerned about for camp heading into training camp. So to me, I see a guy whose shoulder was healed, or at least a lot better, a guy who his foot should be healed. Like, you know, could he get another injury? Absolutely. He might just be broken. That's not out of the question, but I think he's probably the healthiest he's been in several years right now. Yeah, certainly he's had a lot of time off to recover. From a fantasy perspective, Evan, I thought one of the issues for any Patriots quarterback all along was going to be lack of weaponry. I mean, very little at the tight end position. Julian Edelman's 34 years old. Nikhil Harry, I think, can take a leap and still like him, but we'll see. Most Sanu was a disaster down the stretch last year. From a fantasy perspective, Evan, what are you thinking on Cam? I updated Cam in the tiers in the top 150 everywhere last night. And um, I ha- I put him at quarterback 17. He is right behind Jared Goff, and he is actually ahead of Aaron Rodgers, who is not a good fantasy quarterback anymore. Um, I'm with Bill. And, and I one thing I really like that Bill pointed out earlier this offseason that Cam Newton was playing at a very, very high level for most of 2018. Mm-hmm. And people seem to say that he hasn't been good since 2015. I don't know there's just a, a, a false narrative about Cam Newton's effectiveness recently, and um, really about his his uh, his his injury history. He's only had one career concussion, playing as you know a dual threat quarterback in the NFL for 10 years. Um, Trey Wingo did this tweet about. Um, you know, about his injury history. It's just that the the concern, his injury history isn't bad at all, actually, in the NFL. It's really good. Um, like, it, he just hasn't been hurt a lot, but recently he has. And so that obviously is the concern. Is he broken down? You know, he just turned 31 years old. Sure. I, let me say, though, let me say that the type of injuries that he's had are not great for a quarterback. Running quarterback Liz Frank and right shoulder, two surges on a right shoulder. So that's where I would say, yeah, the injury history is maybe perhaps more meaningful than maybe you guys definitely definitely wish he didn't have the the list frank injuries and mm-hmm. the, the first shoulder surgery just didn't work um you know and he just he ran out of gas down that that 2018 season and then just horrible luck in a freaking preseason game yeah. he suffers this foot injury and you know he tried to play through it i mean what what you know what an, what, what a beast trying to play through mm-hmm. an injury like that and then he um, – and, and if you go to Dr. Chow's site and Dr. Chow at profootballdoc.com, he's like, Cam Newton is going to be fully healthy for the season, number one. Number two, the reason that he did not get a contract was primarily due to the pandemic, which prevented concerned teams from bringing him to their facility because the facilities weren't even open. and you know, putting him through a rigorous examination. And at that time, he probably was still, you know, he he and his camp was was probably still optimistic that he was going to get a a significant contract, which he wound up, you know, signing for essentially the minimum plus incentives. Mm -hmm. So um, I I think that a a lot of the, like, you know, a lot of the analysis on Cam Newton, I think is is pretty, pretty weak right now. You know, all these people saying that he's, he's done. I mean, you, maybe he is, but, there's certainly not enough evidence 
uh, for people to be saying definitively that, that Cam Newton is done. Yeah. And, and to, be, to be clear, Cam Newton, when healthy, is one of the best fantasy quarterbacks and really one of the better quarterbacks in the league, uh, I think. So we'll see. Bill, if he is indeed healthy, how do you think Cam will fare with New England, given the supporting cast that they have there? That's what I was going to ask say about. I think the supporting cast is better than people are giving him credit for. You mentioned Mohamed Sanu absolutely tanked last year. He had a high ankle sprain. I mean, he was not 100%. He was playing through a major injury, and he looked nothing like the guy we saw in Atlanta, who was not a big part of that offense, but a guy who was effective in a smaller role. Um, Edelman was playing through an injury as well. He was not on he had surgery like pretty much right after the season ended. Uh, he was not 100% or close to it. Um, the offensive line was banged up. They're getting David Andrews back. Um, you know, I, I feel like I'm not optimistic about the running game and Sonny Michelle, but I think Cam's going to help that. And I think, you know, they have a viable core of weapons for Cam to work with. It's not going to be, you know, top 10, but how often did Cam really have great weapons in Carolina? And he was still a very productive fantasy quarterback. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I think if he plays, and I, I think it's obviously a question of whether he makes it to week one, whether he's on the roster, we don't know. But if he plays, I think the Patriots are going to have an effective offense around him in terms of weapons, in terms of scheme. And I think as long as he stays healthy, Cam is going to be a productive, effective NFL starting quarterback. All right. Evan and I will continue to talk and debate about the Patriots situation going forward. I want to move on to Lamar Jackson. Evan and I have not spent a lot of time on Lamar Jackson this offseason because it's such a slam dunk. But we can say that Lamar was way outside any reasonable statistical norm in passing rate, you know, 9% is in passing touchdown rate, just 9% is just absurd. Uh, I think given what we've seen from his 7.8 yards per attempt will be t- difficult to sustain. And I think almost as importantly, some of the team stuff, you know, Ravens third in place per game, Ravens 3.8 touchdowns per game, easily the best in the NFL. So everybody, it's easy to say, oh, of course, there's gonna be regression from Lamar. Of course, there's gonna be regression from the Ravens offense. Of course, the question is, how much, what do you see in this follow-up to the MVP campaign out of Lamar Jacksonville? I mean, the, the stuff you said really matters. The touchdown rate, obviously, is not going to recur. I think it's happened three times in history with a 9% or better touchdown rate for a quarterback. So, obviously, can't expect it to happen again. I would mention the health. Not really for Lamar Jackson, who I think is an absolute genius when it comes to avoiding hits. I mean, you know, obviously, he has a chance of getting hit or getting an injury because he does get hit more than, you know, Tom Brady, I guess. But um, a guy who does roll down, a guy who gets out of bounds more than just about anybody, um, I would be concerned about the offense around him in terms of their health. I think they missed only a handful of games. Let's maybe five or no, I think a little more than that. So less their center, but otherwise pretty much a very healthy offense. And then you lose Marshall Yonda, who is, uh, you know, one of the best guards in football. They're replacing him with, you know, rookies and, and mid-tier guys that are not going to get as effective play. You're going to see teams from, from watching uh, them play. You're going to see teams like, I think, be a little quicker about adjusting, but you, I went through the numbers and Lamar Jackson was pretty effective in his second and third games against uh, opposing defenses who had already seen him once. So to me, you know, I, I downgrade him a bit, but to me, he's still like the second best fantasy quarterback in the league or pretty close to it. Yeah. And Evan has him, I believe, still right behind Patrick Mahomes. I think the question is, you know, the question people keep asking us, is it worth reaching? Is it worth taking Lamar and Patrick Mahomes in round three? I think once you start to build in regression for Lamar, where he was clearly a league winner last year, the quarterback position was extremely rare. But once you start to build in regression for Lamar, he starts to ski, ski, slip back. And then you have guys like, you know, Matthew Stafford in, in round 12 or Carson Wentz in round 10. And then you start to get to a point where the opportunity cost on Lamar in round three is really a lot. But anyways, Evan, where are you thinking about Lamar? We really haven't talked a lot about him this year too much other than saying that you prefer Patrick Mahomes this year. Yeah, I mean, I think that you guys covered a lot of it. Um, I still think he's going to have a heck of a season. I'm willing to draft him in the third round. I took Patrick Mahomes in, a, uh, in, in, a, in the third round uh, recently after Lamar went uh, right ahead of him. Um, I like betting on continuity this year. You know, as we've discussed, probably ad nauseum, people are probably tired of, of, of hearing me talk about this, but I want to bet on continuity in a year like this with no offseason. And what are we going to get, one preseason game? I, I, don't, I don't know. That, that sounds like it. they're saying two, but, you know, the Players Association are like, no, we're not playing two. Mm-hmm. So uh, that is all yet to be decided. But bringing back Greg Roman, you know, he certainly could have been hired as an, as an NFL head coach. Uh, this offseason with a bunch of teams needing new head coaches. He was not he, in, in league circles, I guess. They they think of him more of as like a um, 
a brain than like a leader of men. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the, the reason that I, I've heard that he is not a head coach yet in the NFL, but certainly one of the best orchestrators of the running game of, uh, you know, of this generation. Marquise Brown was hurt like most of last season mm-hmm. uh, on, you know, almost every injury report and he it will be entering his second year. So and Mark Andrews comes back. He was hurt quite a bit. He was on the injury report quite a bit last year. So I think that Lamar is going to have an excellent season. His touchdown rate is probably going to drop from like nine to five, mm-hmm. and that would be huge. And I think that that's where Patrick Mahomes is going to end up getting him, um, and you know, and 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 outscoring him just by a little bit. But yeah, I think that those those two guys are pretty much in a tier unto their own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The real question for fantasy is if you think that they will be so far ahead of the rest of the quarterbacks that they're worth a pick in round three. And I think that remains up for debate. We did a whole podcast on late round quarterback options that you can go back and listen to. One quarterback going late, they may be a candidate for some post-hype stuff. And I love thinking about this post-hype stuff is Baker Mayfield because, I mean, last year there was so much hype around Baker Mayfield. They add Odell Beckham, they have Landry, they have Njoku, and then they just fall flat on their face. And Evan has put a lot of the blame on Freddie Kitchens, who refused to free Todd MF and Monken. Uh, but <laughs> now Freddie Kitchens is gone. They bring in Kevin Stefanski, the longtime Vikings offensive assistant. Like I can see it. Like I still think they're going to be run heavy, but I can see some post-hype appeal in Baker Mayfield, at least from a game theory perspective. I'm curious what you saw out of Baker last year and what you think of him going forward this year, Bill. Yeah. I mean, I wrote about the 2018 starting quarterbacks this week for ESPN. Long looks at um, Lamar Jackson, Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, um, Josh Allen, of course, the, the MVP to come, according to Evan, uh, which I, I respect. I think that's a great, it, it's a great limb to go out on. Like, I think it, it, in terms of variance, I think it's an awesome, uh, awesome pick to go for. Um, but in terms of Baker, I, I like it more in real life than I do in fantasy for the arguments you made. This is still going to be a run-heavy offense. I mean, you know, I, I think the interceptions are going to come down. I think the touchdowns are going to come up. but you know, think about Kirk Cousins last year. I mean, he had basically the dream season for Baker May- for uh, Baker Mayfield this year, where in terms of what Kirk Cousins did last year, he was the quarterback 15. I mean, he wasn't like he was a, you know, a a really significant fantasy impact, uh, impactful player. So when it comes to Baker, I mean, I, I think he's going to be more efficient. I think he's going to be in a better place, but I don't think this offense is going to be built around him throwing the football. I think they're going to try and use a ton of Nick Chubb, a ton of Cream Hunt, who I think, you know, Cream Hunt, obviously, if a Nick Chubb injury happens, could be, you know, a enormous league winner. I think he's such a, you know, a high upside option. But um, I just don't think Baker's going to get the volume to justify really being too fantasy relevant. Yeah, I haven't been getting much Baker in drafts that I've done, or really any Baker at all. I don't know where you're at with Baker right now, Evan. Yeah, um, pretty much on the same plane as Bill. Uh, first of all, to address the the Todd Monken thing, you know, he would script the plays uh, on the first drives, and the Browns were, had one of the best offenses on on their first possessions in the league mm-hmm. last. Then it would just all fall to pieces when Freddie K- Kitchens started calling the plays. Uh, but I think that this year with Kevin Stefanski in Cleveland, the name of the game for them is going to be efficiency. Um, they are going to hammer play action. And Baker's passer rating um, went from 68.9 without play action to 102.5 when using play action last season. Uh, the Browns' yards per play went from 5.6 to 8.9 when using play action. Kirk Cousins last year under Kevin Stefanski utilized play action at the fifth highest rate in the NFL. And they're trying to build – oh, and they also – they're they're they they're building building a tight end stable to where they can use twelve and even thirteen personnel. And twelve personnel has been you know, very efficient, very efficient mm-hmm. when you have the correct personnel. And I think that they do now with Austin Hooper, David Njoku, and Harrison Bryant, who they took in the fourth round, who won the friggin' Mackey Award last mm-hmm. year. Well, I mean, what a steal he was! I remember he and um in a Peter Schrager mock at one point mock draft yeah. before the before the actual thing had Harrison Bryant uh, as a first round pick. Um, and I, I'm sure that Traeger, you know, probably got that, you know, from someone that he's going to go earlier uh, than anticipated. Traeger actually is one of the more accurate mock drafters. He didn't get that one right, but I still thought that that kind of stuck. Like there were people in the league that really liked uh, Harrison Bryant. Um, so, yeah, I think that this year is going, and I mean, they're, they're, 
they're building like one of the most physical football teams in the league. They use their uh, their their biggest free agent signing was a right tackle, and their number one draft pick was a left tackle. You know, they it was irresponsible what John Dorsey did last year trotting out Baker Mayfield behind that offensive line. I mean, they cut their left tackle right before week one. No one cared to go pick him up, and they just re-signed him for some you know cap cap thing. Um, you know, Chris Hubbard is just, he was like Todd Haley's friend. You know, that's why, <laughs> that's why he got a contract from them and he was awful. Um, they traded Kevin Zeitler. They replaced him with, uh, uh, John Dorsey's draft pick, Austin Corbett, Austin Corbett, just a complete disaster. I mean, that, that was, that was, they did Baker Mayfield a disservice mm-hmm. last year. And that's why John Dorsey got fired. Um, by the way, we do have ADP, uh, con- continuously updating ADP up on the site right now. Baker Mayfield is going at 125.7 and a half PPR. I think I would rather wait and go Joe Burrow, 143. I would rather wait and go Teddy Bridgewater down at 177, two of my more, more uh, late round quarterbacks that I think I like. All right, Bill, I got to ask you about Carson Wentz. I, it's difficult to evaluate Carson Wentz's season last year when his starting receivers for much of the year were Greg Ward, Nelson Aguilar. He only had Alshon for... 10 games. He only had Deshaun Jackson for one game. J.J. Arcega-Whiteside was just an absolute tragedy. He had Ertz and Goddard, of course, but but still, I mean, Wentz was able to finish as fantasy's quarterback nine. Now he gets Djax back healthy. Maybe Alshon Jeffries healthy. They take Jalen Rieger in the first round. I mean, I think people forget Carson Wentz is only 27 years old and just mm-hmm. extremely productive from a fantasy perspective with a lack of weapons. So I want to be optimistic on Carson Wentz. I want to be high on Carson Wentz this year. I'm curious what you think. I'm mixed. You know, I, I look at some of the numbers and I, I think there is this perception, by the way, I always love when I, I'm on Twitter and Eagles fans are arguing about Carson Wentz versus Dak Prescott. They're arguing about how he had, you know, guys off the street as his receivers. Like Zach Ertz is a thing. Like Zach Ertz, you have one of the best tight ends in football. He counts when you come to talk, talk about this uh, receiving core. And I think about, you know, the, the receivers they added this year, I think you can kind of poke holes in a lot of them. I think there's a dream scenario where everyone stays healthy and this is, you know, like a, a run and shoot attack and everyone, you know, Carson's throwing 20 yards downfield to open receivers all the time. But I mean, you know, Deshaun, even if he's going to be healthier, is still getting older, still an injury risk. Uh, Jalen Rieger is a first round pick and he might try to be great, but you know, those guys are typically not impact players in year one. All Sean's hurt. I mean, Shilkapadia, who covers, does a great job covering the NFL for the athletic. He thinks he's not going to have an impact this year. Um, I actually kind of like Marquise Goodwin and Ortega Whiteside, strangely. You know, I think they're a little undervalued late in drafts, but when you look at Carson Wentz, look at his performance, I think the idea that he's going to turn into the 2017 Wentz because of what he added this offseason just doesn't add up. I mean, he was the not only great in the red zone in 2017, it was one of the best performances of the last 10 years. Same thing in third down performance. That stuff is just not going to happen again. So the one argument I think you can make when it comes to him as a deep passer, he did unsurprisingly have the highest drop rate in the league on deep throws. So I think you'll see more deep touchdowns but I don't think you're going to see that guy from 2017. So to me, I don't know how you balance that in terms of evaluating his fantasy upside, but I think you're going to see a little better, just not maybe what people are, are expecting or hoping for. Yeah, I think one of the difficult things to do is to evaluate quarterback play in the um, lens of who they have to throw to, right? Is a guy mm-hmm. good or is a guy bad? Who's making who better? Evan, where do you come down on this Carson Wentz debate? Yeah, first of all, this Carson Wentz, Dak Prescott thing, where people say that, you know, the other guy sucks. He's like the dumbest fucking argument <laughs> in, in, in the entirety of like football analysis. I don't even want to say analysis, like discussion, maybe dumbest shit ever. And I mean, you, you become dumber when you read it. Um, but I mean, both guys are really freaking good, you know, and uh, Carson Wentz, when he had a, 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 an excellent supporting cast in what 2017, um, he was playing at, at, you know, at a very, very, at an MVP level. And when he didn't, he showed some ability to like carry the team. So, I mean, to, uh, uh, last season. So, I mean, I, I like Dak Prescott, you know, obviously better as a fantasy quarterback, but I, I think it's going to be a good year for Carson Wentz. I mean, I, I like the fact that they didn't necessarily put all their, 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 their ducks in, in one barrel, if, if that's the correct term, terminology. Um, I like the fact that they took a ton of different shots at um, at wide receivers in the draft and in free agency in the trade for Marquise Goodwin. 
Like they're not going to just run out of guys this year because they have like legit depth. The, the question is, can they get like truly high end wide receiver play? And, um, you know, I think that Jalen Rieger uh, probably gives them their, their, their best chance at that. And I think that Deshaun Jackson, if he's some able, some way able to, you know, eke out like 13 or 14 games, um, we saw what he could do week one. We saw what he could, what he's been able to do. Uh, he led the, uh, and the, led the NFL in yards per reception his final year with Tampa Bay. Um, he's 33 now and, you know, certainly far from a guarantee, but I mean, he can make big plays. I think they'll probably try to limit his snaps. They'll probably try to use like a wide receiver rotation where nobody's playing more than like 65% of the snaps. Um, okay. I want to debate the uh, Bucks for a second because I feel like I'm lower than market and it pains me to say it. I'm lower than market on Chris Godwin. I am Oof. lower than market on Tom Brady. I think when you start to evaluate the Bucks, so much of it has come from the YOLO style of Jameis Winston, the YOLO style of Ryan Fitzpatrick, who set them up to be in these wild game scripts. And I think people often underestimate how important the way a game goes is to fantasy production. When you're throwing pick sixes, it's like the best thing that can happen to a fantasy quarterback. You get into these wild, wild shootouts. Tom Brady is the opposite of that. They are not going to be getting into wild, wild shootouts. At least I don't think with this 43-year-old version of Tom Brady. And, and I could be wrong. I just don't see them having the massive air yards, the massive uh, throw rate that they had with Jameis and with Fitz. And this defense is actually, I think, you know, one of the more underrated defenses in the entire league. So I see a far more conservative, a far less explosive Bucks offense this year, but they're being drafted as if we're talking about the Jameis Bucks and people are even upgrading them because, oh, they have Tom Brady, the GOAT now. Now this could look really bad because I could see, you know, Mike Leone, who works with us on the data side, obviously thinks that Tom Brady's going to throw a bazillion touchdowns and I'm going to look like an idiot. And may maybe that'll be true. Uh, but Bill, uh, what do you think of this version of Tom Brady and how he fits with the Bucks? So sad to hear you downgrading the best receiver on the Bucks, Chris Godwin, uh, after <laughs> last year. Heartbreaking. Um, I agree with you, and, and I'll tell you why. I think the idea that Tom Brady can't throw deep is false. Tom Brady can throw effectively deep. But if Tom Brady wanted to run this air offense for 20 years, they would have been throwing downfield for the past ten, at least for the last 10 years. They would have been chucking the ball downfield all the time. They would have been running the Arians offense because it's a lot better to, you know, run the Bruce Arians offense and pick up 15 yards per play um, when things are going great than running quick game and protecting yourself and moving the ball down the field and controlling the clock. And to me, here's what I think. If I think about the, you know, the Peyton Manning situation in Denver where they ran the Colts offense, or they, they were running the Colts offense by week five or week six. What happens if it's week five and the Bucks are two and two they're facing the Bears on a short week. Brady just got beat up by the Broncos and Chargers over the past two weeks. Do you think they're going to run Bruce Arians' offense? Or do you think they're going to run more quick game and more of the stuff Tom Brady was working with in New England? I think it's going to be the latter. So to me, I think you're going to see more of a mix of those two offenses than people are giving them credit for. And I think the pacing stuff is so true. This is a Bucs team that led the league in possessions last year on offense. So just more opportunities to throw the football around the air yards, obviously, um, you know, it, I don't think just, it's just not going to be the same offense. So to me, I, I like Tom Brady in some sort of role. I think he's better for real football than fantasy football. Um, but I, I'm not optimistic about this offense producing huge fantasy totals now. Yeah. And another bad thing I think for Chris Godwin is the rumors around Antonio Brown. Bruce Arians has denied it big time. Bruce Arians said it's not happening, but there were some reports. Michael Lombardi, who I know Evan follows, uh, hinted that the Bucks were looking at adding Antonio Brown. There will be a suspension there, but I think that would be not the best news for Chris Godwin either. But anyways, Evan, where are we at on Tom Brady right now? Yeah, so it's tough because, you know, we do have, Ev we have Evans pretty high. We have Godwin very high. We have... Gronk as a top 10 tight end, you know, and then we've got Brady at, at quarterback 14. And that doesn't really line up from a projection standpoint. But again, it's, it's a testament to the way that we do our rankings, which is really taking stances against ADPs. It's not trying to, oh, you know, align up all the statistical projections. That's the first thing. The second thing is that this schedule, which Bill kind of uh, hinted at to to start the season is freaking brutal. I mean, week one at the Saints, I guess we could, maybe that'll be a shootout. All the, the Saints really don't even play that way anymore. And the Saints have a, an extremely talented defense. Week two, coming back home against the Panthers, I think we'll probably be on the Bucks in DFS. We, we kind of might even want the Buccaneers to like go to the, 
go to uh, the Superdome and score like seven points in week one, come back and just smash the Panthers. But then it's in Denver against the Chargers, who have a really talented defense, and then at Soldier Field to play the Bears. And then I think that even uh, after that, uh, at, oh, Bill, Bill mentioned that's on a short week at Soldier Field. And then they go back home and they, they face the Packers, who have you know two excellent bookend uh, pass rushers. So, I mean, I'm not going to want you know I'm not I'm not going to be wanting to start Tom Brady, even though he's got these great weapons in season long um, during this during this opening stretch outside of the game against Carolina. And I don't really see a path to liking Brady uh, in DFS either. So, uh, I think that just this this opening schedule is um, is you know, it, it's really working against Brady. At the same time, I think that Godwin and Evans and, and Gronk are going to mix in their fair, their fair share of big games. I think that Gronkowski is going to be very, very touchdown lenient. Yeah. Like, I think we're going to see those, you know, six catches for 70-yard games anymore necessarily. I think that we're going to see more, you know, four for, four for 30 and a touchdown, and that, that'll be the way that he helps us. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't be more out on – Gronk um you know such a good blocker at this stage in his career and, and when you can get yeah, I think he'll block quite a bit too yeah I mean you can get TJ Hawkinson and Mike Kosicki later and and Blake Charwin and Chris Herndon and, and Ian Thomas so I know Evan likes I mean there's so much of the tight end position there's no way I would take a pick on Rob Gronkowski we'll see how it plays out it's certainly interesting I want to get Bill's take on Drew Locke because this is a big debate in the fantasy community I don't know if you're aware uh Bill but everybody wants to know can Drew Locke support Cortland Sutton Noah Fant Jerry Judy KJ Hamler Melvin Gordon, is Drew Locke capable of uh, uh, doing uh, what we think that these guys are all capable of is, is an interesting question because we only have a five-game sample mm-hmm. on Drew Locke. He had one really good game. He had a lot of mixed results. I know it's a really small sample. Did you see anything from Drew Locke last year that makes you think, hey, he can come out here and really start spraying the ball around to all these weapons that he has now? I do. Strangely, I was a little surprised. I went back and watched those five games a couple weeks ago, and I was kind of thinking, okay, you know, four easy ma- or three easy matchups, one game against the Chargers where they got lucky at the end and one game where he was terrible against the Chiefs in the snow. I kind of figured, okay, you know, like he's going to be mediocre. I was kind of pleasantly surprised. I mean, he's a good athlete, obviously, has a strong arm. He just tries a lot of stuff. Like there's a lot of throws where I'm just like, I don't expect anyone to make that throw, but he, he goes for it. And I don't know that he's good, but I've, I feel like I've said so many times during this podcast that it, it's a better real life situation than fantasy situation i kind of feel like it's the opposite about drew lock i kind of the guy that came to mind for me was like 2015 blake bortles who was pretty valuable when it came to fantasy football like i think he has that sort of upside and maybe the defense is going to be good enough that he's not going to get those kind of opportunities late in games maybe it'll be more competitive uh than those jaguars teams where blake bortles was a pretty useful fantasy option but i think the you know, the, the arm strength, I think the ability to try things, I think the range, and I think Pat Shermer's a pretty good offensive coordinator, um, maybe starts as head coach, but I think he has been effective as an offensive coordinator. So I'm actually kind of optimistic that he could be, you know, a late round option, a flyer, maybe a best ball option. Um, I, I do think Drew Locke has something, uh, you know, to, to support the idea that he can support all those options. Yeah. It's interesting. I think Evan has gotten a little bit lower than market on Corland Sutton, but I think there's, when you start doing target projections, there's a lot of mouths to feed there. I will say, I think the Broncos are a sneaky bet to finish second in that mm-hmm. AFC West. I really like what they did on defense too. They had Jarrell Casey, they had uh, 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 AJ Boye. And, AJ Boye, yep. yeah. And, and yeah, I, I think that the Broncos have a chance to be pretty decent this year if Drew Locke can keep it together. We've talked about this a little, Evan, but I did notice you dropped Corlin Sutton a little bit. What's going on mm-hmm. with your thoughts on Drew Locke? Well, the, the first thing that concerns me, and it's funny, uh, I was talking to uh, Rosenthal about Drew Locke the other day, and he basically said that uh, the same thing as Bill. Um, basically had the, the same analysis about Drew Locke as, as Bill did. Um, what concerns me about Drew Locke is that there's so much turnover in the coaching staff and mm-hmm. the, uh, in the pass catcher court in Denver because it looks like their number two and their, and their number three receivers are going to be rookies um, in, in KJ Hamler and Jerry Judy. They do have the new offensive coordinator. I, I, I'm with you, Bill, that uh, Pat is uh, that Pat Shermer you know, wasn't you know a, a pretty solid hire. But I, I, mean, I didn't think that Scangarello was was terrible either. Yeah, they also changed out their quarterbacks coach. Um, 
So that those are those are concerns for me. In addition to the obvious small sample size against weak defenses, only averaging six and a half yards per attempt, um, although that's not terrible for a rookie. Uh, and then again, schedule concerns um, at home against the Titans. The Titans don't give up points uh, under Mike Vrabel. At the Steelers in Week Two, that is just brutal. Um, back home against. Tampa Bay, and I think we, we probably all agree that Tampa Bay is going to have um, a really good defense For this sure. year. Uh, then at the Jets, maybe Drew Locke could, could do, some, uh, do some magic there. Uh, but then at Foxborough to face the Patriots. So that's, th- those are my concerns over Drew Locke. And, um, you know, I, I'm not super high on that offense uh, starting fast, but um, I think it obviously would be promising if they're able to overcome those that, that really tough early schedule and then and finish strong with all – I mean, they've got young talent, no question. It's just – I don't want to bet on, on that happening, that explosion happening this year. I think that next year would be the year it might happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Last thing I want to talk about before we get to listener questions is these holdouts at the top of the running back position. I know Bill has written about it. There's been – so much has happened the last couple of years with Le'Veon Bell, with Melvin Gordon. I don't see any leverage that Dalvin Cook – has right he has this injury history the new cba like how well alexander madison and mike boone uh can play i don't see any leverage at all for dalvin cook doesn't mean that he won't try joe mixon as well has threatened uh a holdout now the fantasy market doesn't believe that either of these will have an impact these guys adps have barely been adjusted maybe dalvin cook has been uh dropped a little bit in adp but joe mixon continues to go very high it's just a tough sell for either of these guys to try to get any money this is kind of a real life football question bill how do you see the holdouts or at least holdout threats from dalvin cook and joe mixon playing out because let's face it people are doing drafts right now and they want to know how this is going to play out non-existent absolutely not an option and i'll tell you why the new cba makes it impossible for guys to hold out if dalvin cook or joe mixon hold out they are going to have basically a wasted season they're they're not going to get that year accrued towards free agency so I mean, if they want to hold out, great. They're going to be stuck in their exact same situation under the exact same salary. So it's not going to help them in the slightest. I mean, I, you know, I, the conversation about whether to pay these guys is probably another topic altogether, but they're not going to be holding out. I mean, if they're getting advice to hold out, it's bad. It's really bad advice from their agents. They're going to be stuck and they're going to be in training camp. So if that's positive for you with Dalvin Cook's injury history, I don't know, but I mean, they're not going to be holding out is the reality of the situation. Yeah. I mean, Melvin Gordon also got advice from his agent last year not to do what he did. And he said, screw you, I'm going to sit out. I'm going to sit out anyways. I understand it's different now with the CBA that I don't know why the NFLPA signed and let this go through again. But maybe that's another story. But Evan, I assume you have not, or did you drop Dalvin Cook at all? And where you at with Joe Mixon? We dropped him one spot behind Alvin Kamara, which yeah. I think is just, you know, they're all the same. Um, you know, they're they're all like in the, in the same tier. And I think that the the Vikings are actually going to try to find a way to pay Dalvin Cook, and I think that the Bengals might pay Joe Mixon. I mean, they rookie on a you know they've a, their quarterback is on a rookie deal. Um, I I think that they might just pay Joe Mixon, and you know it doesn't I don't I don't care whether they should or you know whatever. Like we can talk that's you know it's a, a topic for a different podcast, but I think that the Bengals like just might just up and pay him, and and the Vikings certainly have not come out. If anything, the Vikings have come out and been like, yeah, we're open to doing a deal with you at the right price with Dalvin Cook. Um, speaking of Joe Mixon, I did this uh, low stakes uh, best ball draft and I put it up for free on the site and I was on the clock at 1.07. I was debating between Joe Mixon and the big dog, Derek Henry. I know that you guys are members of the big dog fan club and and I thought it was really close, man, because I think G- Gio Bernard is a real threat to Joe Mixon to take 10, 15, 20, 25% of the running back touches. Whereas a healthy Derrick Henry in positive game scripts, we know he's going to touch the ball 20, 25, 30 times. And the Titans do project to have a lot of positive game scripts last this year, like we talked about on the schedule release show. So I went Joe Mixon for the pass game role, just because I can't stomach watching. If something goes bad for the Titans, I can't stomach watching Big Dog not be out there on pass downs, but I can certainly make a good case for the big dog. But but Bill, I know you're a member of the big dog fan club. I assume you would have gone Derrick Henry over Joe Mixon there. I think so. Um, I just, I mean, it's a, it's a guaranteed, you know, pretty much significant role. Um, you know, Joe Mixon has had, obviously, 
um, some absences in the past. I think there was some positive regression coming for Joe Mixon in terms of, I believe his touchdown rate was pretty low last year, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I would say some negative regression coming for the big dog, but uh, I was waiting for that all postseason, and it didn't happen. Yeah. So um, I think he is beyond regression. He is the man that broke math and the man that broke so many tackles last year, which is yeah. why I am inclined to just back the big dog until proven wrong. Yeah, I, I lost uh, a Kia on betting on against uh, big dog <laughs> on <laughs> big dog regressing at the end of last year. Evan, what would you do on the clock? Joe Mixon in a half PPR. Joe Mixon versus Derrick Henry. Well, I wore my um. Yeah. Wore my- shirt today um, Evan's, Evan's shirt Bill says talk, Evan's Bill shirt was saying says, he wanted to you know talk about uh yeah. Derek Henry it says run the damn ball is what Evan's shirt says yeah yeah uh I have them right next to each other um and I mean I think about changing it a lot when I look at the rankings um and I also think about is there some sort of untapped potential for Derrick Henry to catch 35 passes this year and Dude, when Derrick Henry catches a pass, like, clear out the way, you know. I mean, he is – he's an absolute stud. And um, I, I, because the, because obviously they, they moved on from Der, uh, uh, Deion Lewis. And now number two back, looks like it's going to be Darrington Evans, who they took with, like, a, a third-round uh, third compensatory pick. And he's a, a little rookie out of Appalachian State. Are they really going to trust him to be on the field often with like no practice time coming out of app state. I mean, what if Derrick Henry becomes an every down back this year? Mm-hmm. I mean, shoot, I'm, I'm going to move him up after the show. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> All right. We're running late here, but let's go quickly through some of these listener questions. And I thought the question one from Steve 90 was an interesting one. He says, what percent of a team's cap would Bill use on Patrick Mahomes? Mm. And, and it's an interesting question, Bill. I believe Russell Wilson currently leads the NFL. He makes $35 million a year, at least an average salary. That's like 17, 18% of the cap. I mean, you can't even put a number on how valuable Patrick Mahomes is in this, in the way the NFL is played right now. But but what? how much can you pay the guy? How much can the Chiefs pay the guy? I mean, if it were this, this hypothetical example, I'd probably go 70 million. Like I think it's 35% of the cap and I, I would mm-hmm. feel pretty comfortable doing that without having to blink too much. Any mm-hmm. point beyond that, I think it's a little tough, but I mean, the hard part for them is that they have to number one, compare Patrick Mahomes to a sample size of maybe Dan Marino. And that's it in terms of similar players through three years. And then um, they rightfully, the Chiefs would hold out for a discount because Patrick Mahomes is still two years from free agency and Patrick Mahomes side could sit here and say, Hey, we happen to be, you know, this is the best quarterback uh, through three years in the history of the national football league. So that's going to be a tough negotiation. And it wouldn't shock me if, it did wait a year for that deal to get done where it wasn't a deal signed sign after three seasons, unless Mahomes does take that discount. So, um, you know, I, he's not going anywhere, obviously. I, I, the question I'd ask is this on the flip side, how much would you guys be willing to pay Andy Reid to be your head coach? If you were going to be drafting a quarterback prospect. Yeah. Coaching does not factor into the uh, salary cap. Obviously you can pay them whatever you want. It's an interesting question. Andy Reid was run out of town here in Philly, uh, I think somewhat unwarranted, and there's a lot of uh, regret there now, even though they did win Super Bowl. Evan, answer Bill's question. How much would you pay Andy Reid? Just whatever he wants, you know. <laughs> Imagine having a billion dollars and owning the Chiefs and getting to make a decision like that. Yeah, seriously. Um, all right, question two. Just go out on a boat and you never see me again, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, question two comes from Cody Ash. He says, what is your guys' confidence level in the Giants' offense under Jason Garrett? Too many weapons to fail, right? Uh, yeah, there's two concerns with the Giants' offense this year. I think very clearly the schedule to start the season is very difficult. Overall, the schedule is not great, at least the way it looks now. And, and the issue number two is Jason Garrett, who was uh, frustratingly conservative at times with the Cowboys. They have Danny Dimes, though, who I probably like more than most uh, real football analysts. Saquon Barkley, Evan Ingram, Golden Tate, Sterling Shepard, Darius Slayton. I mean... Cody is right. They're absolutely loaded. Can Jason mm-hmm. Garrett mess this up, Bill? Yes, he can absolutely mess this up. I, I'm not as optimistic. I mean, obviously, Daniel Jones was great for fantasy purposes last year. Um, mm-hmm. He had a habit of just kind of falling asleep in the pocket and just standing there until someone strip sacked him last year. 
um, which hopefully gets better this year. I just, I look at those weapons. How many of those guys have injury concerns? I mean, Golden Tate um, has been hurt in the past. Sterling Shepard's been hurt in the past. Evan Engram has barely been healthy for stretches. Saquon Barkley missed a chunk of last year with a high ankle sprain. Um, and then I look at the offensive line. The tackle situation, you know, on paper is great. Nate Solder and Andrew Thomas, but Nate Solder has been bad. Andrew Thomas is a rookie. I mean, he may turn out to be great. Um, and, you know, he may be an upgrade on what they had at tackle, but doesn't mean he's going to be an above average tackle from the jump. So um, I am, they're more of like a best ball team for me, where if everything goes right, they could be a really, really impressive offense. But I think it's going to be inconsistent. There's going to be weeks where they are awesome. And, you know, our, our DFS winners and weeks where they really struggle and we're sort of wondering what on earth Jason Garrett is doing. Yeah. I mean, Evan, we've already spent enough time on the Giants. I think everybody knows your take on them by now. Let's move to question three. Kevin Ristway says, which front offices, in Bill's opinion, make the best use of analytics for player evaluation slash pay calling? And I I did want to ask you this earlier, too, about the Football Outsiders stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. the NFL, real NFL, has changed so much since 2005, even since 2008, since 2010, uh, in terms of how they implement analytics on the field. I noticed it at least in Baltimore, uh, in Philadelphia, I think. But is there any teams that stick out to you that say, hey, these guys are really doing analytics right on the field, though? Yeah, I mean, there's three basic groups of analytics groups when it comes to the NFL. I mean, there are teams who have people and they'll listen to them, people who are well-intentioned, uh, teams who are well-intentioned, I should say, and then when they make meaningful decisions, ignore the analytics altogether, like the Falcons are a good example of that second group. And then there are teams who actively use analytics uh, to make their decisions, and actually in terms of on-field decisions. And the Ravens and the Eagles are, are pretty much at the top of the list, the two teams you mentioned. Other teams in that group for, for 2020, I would say probably the Browns, the Colts, Dolphins, and, and Patriots come to mind as like the other four teams where if you, you ask me like who's actually using analytics, mm-hmm. I'd probably go those six teams as like the core of the NFL. Yeah. And those are the kind of teams I I like to be high on. Like, I think Evan and I both think that Dolphins are doing it the right way from the Mm -hmm. top down. Uh, Yeah, I I think when you're uh, making bets and putting money down, I want to be on the side of the smart teams. So I think that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate you sharing who you think those are. Evan, any other teams you think are doing a good job with analytics that you've actually noticed on the field? Oh, Bears just crushing it. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Um uh, the 49ers, I think, uh, use analytics a little bit more than maybe they are given credit for or more than they let on. Um, the Bills, I think, are building their team analytically. And I was, I was down on, on the Bills' uh, new regime initially, but I, I've really come around on it. I like that they are you know, realizing that Josh Allen is this flawed player who does have some great characteristics. And you know, was the worst deep ball passer in the NFL. What do they do? They go and get the best deep ball receiver to, you know, uh, try to like elevate his game. I mean, his game did elevate last year when they poured a bunch of resources into the offensive line and, and John Brown and, um, and and Cole Beasley. And I think Dawson Knox is a really interesting athlete with, with a chance to um, make a second year leap. But I, I, they're building their team analytically. I don't know if they're necessarily making their decisions you know, wholesale based on, 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 uh, on analytics, but I do think that they're building analytically. And then the Cowboys, I think are actually one of the foremost teams that utilizes analytics. And um, I think that they've sort of been that for a long time. You can tell that they, there's a certain profile of an athlete that they're looking for in the draft and they've done very well in the draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'll fire the hot take cannon. I, I maybe not even a hot take, but despite the addition of Cam Newton, I do think the bills still win the AFC East, and we'll see uh, what happens there. But I, I think you can get uh, bills at pretty good prices now in the wake of the euphoria around Cam Newton. Um, okay, let's go to another question about the NFC East from Anthony Lawson. He says, do you guys think Dallas goes more spread this year with the coaching change and the addition of CeeDee Lamb, or do you think we continue to see more pro sets? Obviously, Jason Garrett's gone, as we already mentioned. Mike McCarthy is in. Mike McCarthy has claimed that during his time away from the game, he has embraced analytics. I would note that Kellen Moore is expected to stay in the role of calling plays, which I think means a lot. But yeah, what do you think of Dallas's offense this year? I mean, this uh, all the fantasy community is like literally falling all over themselves <laughs> to be on Dallas uh, this year. Bill, do you think that's warranted? I think it's warranted. I mean, this is a team that was second in offensive DVOA last year. I think a lot better than maybe people 
sort of give them credit for, given that the you know actual raw production wasn't always all that great. Um, in terms of these spread, though, I, I don't think they're going to be doing it that much more frequently. Uh, according to the NFL's next-gen stats, they were in 11 personnel nearly 67% of the time, um, which is you know pretty dramatically high for your, your, your top offensive set. I'm not Rams level, but certainly you know, uh, outside of the Rams and, and teams like the Rams, you know, pretty high up. And then they were in 12 personnel another 18 and a half percent of the time. So, you know, I think they'll go 11 a little bit more. Maybe they'll approach 70 or, you know, closer to 75 percent. But I don't think they're going to be like in the 90 percent range when it comes to 11 personnel. I think they're still going to want to feed Zeke and still want to have, you know, an extra tight end or an extra fullback on the field. Yeah. Uh, Dallas, I believe, led the league in yards per play last year. And, and you know, it's tough for them. As you said, it's tough to see them get even better offensively. I think they got in some really good game scripts for Dak. But yeah, I mean, the 11 personal question is a good one because we were trying to project exactly how much CeeDee Lamb is going to get to play. Any new thoughts since we've last talked about the Cowboys, Evan? No, not really. I, I just really like the Cowboys this year. I mean, I, my questions are primarily on defense for them. I think they're just going to absolutely light it up, score a bunch of touchdowns, you know, um, I, I think that, you know, they're going to be probably, yeah, right around 70%. I mean, McCarthy, uh, 11 personnel. McCarthy ran, like, constant 11 personnel in mm-hmm. Green Bay. They threw the ball a lot. Um, just to, just to, Dallas is going to be a hub for fantasy points on down to Blake Jarwin. All right. Last question we are going to do comes from Jay Bird. He says, what is your favorite, for Bill, what is your favorite living in Vegas story that you didn't write about? at Grantland. Uh, before you go, Bill, I'll give a quick Vegas story that that I wish I had something better. I hope you have something about something more interesting. My, my favorite Vegas story I have is uh, I was out there for uh, like World Series Maine or, or some other stuff. I don't even remember, but I was really grinding WNBA DFS hard and it was the MLB all-star break. And normally I wouldn't have cared too much, but um, you know, I would have just been on Team Smell the Roses or, or whatever and taken the slates off. But MLB all-star break is when all the baseball guys come over and play WNBA. So anyways, you can't play DFS in Nevada. So I drove like 45 minutes or like it was an hour all the way to the California border. I pull over at like this lottery store and I'm walking into the desert holding my laptop. So the ge- so the geolocator would, would let me be in California. You know, I was just standing in the middle of the desert uh, trying to pick up internet, trying to register as many WNBA contests as possible. You know, it's just it's just a total DGen Vegas story, which I thought I would set up because it's not that fun. There's nothing really to partying or anything like that. I'm sure Evan and Bill uh, have better Vegas stories. But anyways, Bill, they're at, they want to know your favorite Vegas story that you never wrote about at Grantland. Oh, boy. I mean, I have a mystery that maybe you guys can solve that I have not been able to solve in all my years since I lived there. Um, I So I lived in Vegas for a year. Um, uh, I, you know, ESPN, I think there's a subscription like ESPN like paid for this. ESPN paid for none of this. I, I paid the move. I paid for my apartment. I paid for all my gambling, for better or worse. Um, but I was living like on the strip. It was like the middle of the recession. And so the, uh, MJM had just built this like brand new like rental property that nobody had bought. So it was just this empty building. I'd go days without seeing anybody. Um, it was depressing, but it was also great because I was in Vegas and I was, you know, like the, the basement of my building was the Aria. So I would just like, you know, uh, if news broke, I would be able to just walk down and, and place a bed, which is good and bad in a lot of ways. But so I mentioned on, I think I was on maybe Bill Simmons podcast uh, that year. So I, when I was there, I'm like, oh, I'm living in Vegas. I'm living, you know, in this building, blah, 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 blah. So the next day, uh, I get a note slip underneath my door. And this is like a building where, you know, like you have to like, you know, swipe a fob to get in. Like you can't get off on someone else's floor. Like, I don't know how this person got on my floor. They're either living on my floor with me or they pulled some strings. It was very distressing that I got this note. The note said, hey, I'm a bookie. I am happy to let you bet big free on whatever you want. And he had two rules. His two rules, number one, I can move the line a half point in either direction. And number two, I can't, or number two, his rule was, you're not allowed to bet on Notre Dame. And to this day, I did not bet with this guy, of course, but to this day, I do not understand why he would not let me bet on Notre Dame. Well, that's a slap in your face. First of all, Vig Free and let you move the line half point you want. He's just insulting you, first of all. <laughs> no, no, he he was allowed to move the line a half point. Oh, he was allowed to move the line yes. a half point. I mean, that's to be fair, to be fair, uh, even if he hadn't moved the half line, it was probably still going to be a profitable venture for him. But <laughs> yeah, it, it was, I, I get Vig Free, he gets to move the line a half point either way. And I can't. Well, maybe Maybe he was a big Notre Dame fan like Evan. Evan's the biggest Notre Dame homer. 
Was it Evan? Was that was that the mystery? Was it <laughs> did, I had a question. Did you ever run into Vegas Dave? <laughs> I don't I don't I don't believe that I did. I was gonna like I sort of wanted to do like a big thing on like the touts and sort of like, you know, uh try to expose one of their systems, but it just felt like it was not gonna be worth it. Something else yeah. would pop up. Yeah. It doesn't, yeah. So many people try to do that. It's like so ineffective. You know, people are going to get fooled, get fooled anyways. And if right. you're interested in that stuff, I did talk to Rufus Peabody about that on a, on an earlier episode uh, a couple months ago. Uh, last time I saw Evan in Vegas, you know how in Vegas you can only like get a cab like at the cab stand? Yes. You know what I mean? Like you have to go to like the lot. Last time I saw Evan in Vegas, which was when we went out there for that uh, contest winner thing, Evan was just hailing cabs in the middle of Las Vegas Boulevard. And one, I couldn't believe one actually stopped for him. It was it was actually amazing. But <laughs> Wow. <laughs> but yeah, any other stories from Vegas, Evan, or you want to keep them all to yourself? No, yeah, just we'll, we'll keep we'll, we'll keep them to ourselves. Yeah, I figured that. All right, Bill, can't thank you enough for being here. We learned so much. Tell the people where they can find you and all your work. Oh boy, ESPN.com, um, NFL section, writing about football. I have a podcast too, the Bill Barnwell Show. Um, and on Twitter, if I have not blocked you already, it's at Bill Barnwell. <laughs> all right, can't thank you enough for being here. Can't thank you enough for the support of ETR. And we'll be back next week with some big, big news. So. For Bill, for Evan, for producer Luke, I am Adam. Good luck, everybody. Mm-hmm.